0: Beely is ready. Zassadil to hold. Leach to snap. 46-yard field goal try to win the game in overtime. The snap is good. The ball is down. The kick is up, and the kick
1: is good! It's good! The Cardinals win it!
2: It is up. It is season two, episode number 35 of the Sportscasters. One week late here on October 2nd, 2012. Got to apologize for not having a show last week. I was uh, down and out under the weather. Uh, we couldn't do a show. We did do a Football Nation show, though, a really good Football Nation show. We interviewed Steve James, the director of Head Games and uh, formerly the director of Hoop, G- Hoop Dreams, one of the more famous sports direct- documentaries of all time. But we're back this week, finally with Season uh, 2, Episode 35 of the show, and we got some great guests lined up for you today. Damon Hack from the Golf Channel, formerly of Sports Illustrated, is going to join us to talk about Team USA's collapse at the Ryder Cup this weekend, and also talk about what it's like to be a football fan again after spending so many years covering the league for SI and the New York Times. This year, Damon's been able to spend Sundays at home watching the games on his big leather chair, and we'll talk to Damon about that also we have Lars Anderson we had Lars way back in April we talked to him a little bit about the beginning of the NASCAR season and some early college football things and Lars is back with us today to talk a little bit about the chase uh in NASCAR's playoffs uh, a little bit about the historical the place in history where Jimmy Johnson is in NASCAR the bigger picture is he uh Mount Rushmore driver. Uh, We're also going to talk college football with Lars, specifically talk a little bit about the SEC and find out what he thinks about this Alabama team and if they really are as good as maybe I mentioned on our last show. Uh, Also, Jonah Carey is going to be on with us from grantland.com to talk a little bit about the baseball playoffs, which start this week, and also the MVP in the AL. It's becoming a debate between old school and new school. Uh, The Triple Crown, which it seems like Miguel Cabrera is going to win for the first time since 1967 uh, when Yastrzemski won it, versus Mike Trout in advanced statistics and things like war. And uh, we're going to talk war as in the statistic. Uh, We're going to wins over replacement. We're going to talk to Jonah about those things. Also, uh, we have a book club update for you today. We have pick four, five on fantasy, and we're going to start with three things. But I very rudely kind of ignored Don this whole intro. What's up, Don? How's it going? You're just sitting over there kind of quiet, kind of got a perplexed look on your face.
1: <laughs> I'm trying to read a little bit about our monitor. Yeah, we've been about having all
2: kinds of like technical difficulties all of a sudden yeah. in the last couple of weeks. My dog ate a cord, and like since then all hell seems to have broken loose. <laughs> uh, but don't forget to check out our podcast at Football Nation com. There's now a podcast tab, so we're a lot easier to find yeah, over that. there than That's we nice. used to be. All you have to do is click on podcasts, and no matter if we're on the main page or not in the news scroll, we're only one click away without having to search or anything like that, so you can find us there. Uh, and also, if you want to check out last week's show or two weeks ago when we had Lee Jenkins and Ben Ryder and Roy McGregor on, you can still find that on our website, www.sports.com casters dot com. You can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters, and you can email us anytime the sportscasters at gmail dot com. And I got to say, the Football Nation listeners are doing a great job of getting some good email questions in. We've had a good question the last three weeks, if not more than one good question. So, sportscasters proper fans need to step it up with the emails. All right, let's get this thing going, and uh, let's do three things.
3: Let's play a game. All right. Count of three.
2: One. Alrighty, I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at
3: quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever! (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yup! Now let's move on to other business.
1: Alright, the first thing we've gotten to every week. But the past few weeks has been uh, the NFL week that was, and I don't know. What do you think the biggest surprise of the week was? Maybe the Jets. The Jets not got Not losing pounded. that game, but the way they lost it. Uh, 34 to nothing against the 49ers. It's a pretty ugly one if you're the Jets. Already fans are kind of screaming for Tebow, which I think people could have saw coming, really.
2: Yeah, I think maybe one of the big stories of the week, one, is how bad... Some teams lost, like you mentioned, the Jets, also the Raiders. I thought the Raiders would be a lot more competitive than they seem to be. Um,
1: Could lump the Bills in there, too. Yeah, the
2: Bills, who <sighs> can be more frustrating. They had a yep. 21-7, and I felt the game change. It was 21-7 in the third quarter. Patriots score for the first time since their opening drive, and the Bills' offense comes out and goes three and out. And I just felt right there like that was just the worst time for a 3-and-out. And And from that point on, Brady and the Patriots just stomped them. Also, another, I think, a story that's getting bigger and bigger is how well the young quarterbacks in the league are playing. Um, Brandon Whedon played one of his better games on Thursday Night Football to start the week.
1: Still looking for his first win, though.
2: Still looking for a win. But he's the worst, maybe, of the five, unless maybe he's passed... Russell Wilson, who's kind of tailed off a little bit from the preseason that he had. Uh, Andrew Luck was on a bye this week. But RG3 led his team down the field on the road against Tampa Bay in very little time to kick a game-winning field goal. Uh, Andy Dalton, the second-year player, plays like a veteran every week. Cam Newton almost pulled off an upset. Of the undefeated Falcons in Atlanta. Probably should have. Should have. If, if he didn't fumble when he did, he would have.
1: Yeah, and they're getting beat up a lot for not going for it on fourth and one. Even though they punted to the one-yard line, it's just... if you, The way I like to break it down, uh, there's guys that are smarter than me, John Wertheim, uh, Aaron Schatz, who we've had out in the past, that will give you all the data and the statistics behind why, or why it's probable that you'll make a fourth and one. Right. The way I see it is going for it on fourth down gives you two chances to win. Uh, if you don't make it, you're not guaranteed to lose still. Your right? defense still has a chance to stop them. All you really net by punting there is whatever they netted—thirty, at 30, 40 yards. So you, you make the team go further. But if you have any confidence in your offense, you can win on with the offense. And even if you don't, you could still win and on And when the you defense. have
2: a quarterback who can pick up a yard as easily as it seems like yeah. Cam Newton can... And then the other young quarterback, second year guy that's turning into a superstar in front of our eyes is Christian Ponder.
1: Yeah, he looks uh, good.
2: You know, I don't I didn't I didn't expect the Vik the Vikings are the biggest surprise to me in the league. Uh because Could I just be. didn't expect them to be what they are. Their only loss this season was on a last second field goal on the road in Indianapolis. And they've beaten good they've teams. They've beaten good teams like San Francisco, Francisco. and yep. Detroit, if Detroit is still considered a good team. I'm yeah, not no, really sure no, not if sure. they are or not. Uh, they're another big surprise. Uh, and he beat Jacksonville at home, which that's just an example of doing what you have to do, which is a big part of this. Uh, Sam Bradford's got his team 2-2. Two and two. He still just does not have enough weapons there, though. No. I mean, he's dishing the ball off to Amendola, like, at a 12-pass a, a game clip, and that's just not enough. Um but, yeah, and then we, we got to say something about the Saints, right? I mean, they fell to 0 and 4. They probably played their best game of the season. Yeah. They finally got some breaks.
1: The Packers, I mean, they're 2 and the 2. Packers it. are very vulnerable. Yeah, they're, not they're not the team they were last either. year. No. I think there's maybe one good team in the league, one potentially great team in the league right now. And the rest of them, I think, are just pretty good.
2: Atlanta's the potentially great team, or Houston? I think it's Houston. Houston? Yeah, yeah. I
1: mean, Atlanta's kind of played close games, too. They've gotten away with a couple, close too. Games yeah. too. Houston's just blown everybody out, with uh, the exception of maybe one game.
2: But, yeah. Uh, Houston is definitely, I think you can clearly say, the class of the AFC. Sure. And they're going to really easily win their division. And they might have a really easy path to home field advantage, too.
1: Yeah, people have kind of hinted that, at that as far as... <laughs> getting into fantasy stuff goes that if they have that division wrapped up by week 12 or right. earlier, that could hurt might some watch of their guys. Arian Foster, or Andre Johnson, so something to keep an eye I on. I think
2: it's going to be real interesting when they play Green Bay at home in a couple of weeks. Right before they're by, they have Green Bay and Baltimore. So that's probably the and I think we're game. going to know right then if they are the best team in football. Yep. Uh, they also have a week 14 Monday night game against New England, and that game could be for – Everything, you know, like home field and right,
1: but uh, Cardinals, the other four and O team other than Atlanta, uh, they're interesting to me, and I actually took it on upon myself to check the, some of their stats out. and I'll talk more about that at the end of the other podcast,
2: okay? Uh, I asked you on, on text message if they're the worst O and four team ever, and you kind of stuck up for them.
1: I, I think. My stats don't bear out what I thought. I thought their defense was better than they are. and
2: They got the signature win against New England, so I guess that's going to keep them from being the worst 4 0 team on the road, ever, because the worst 4 0 team ever doesn't have a win like New England in New England. All right, without getting into so. it
1: too much and uh, spoiling my thing for the other show, uh, they're first in the league in fumbles and fumble recoveries, forced fumbles and fumble recoveries. A lot of guys like Aaron Schatz, like. Uh, any guys that Kerry are... J. Byrne. J. Byrne right. Yeah. Big stat guys. will tell you that fumbles are really hard to predict. So that's one thing that I question whether or not they can keep doing. But they're third in the league in points per game allowed. That's a real stat. Uh, they might be the definition of a bend don't, but don't break defense. I love Patrick Peterson. Yeah, he's a star. And uh, you never know. If that Kevin Cobb drive at the end of that last game is kind of like his coming out party... Did it against a good defense in the Dolphins and won it on the last game, and he won it with his arms. So, I like I said to you on over text, if they have Drew Brees as their quarterback, they're probably in a Super Bowl discussion. But because it's Kevin Cobb, and I mean, they got a lot of young guys there, and uh, they're running back to Ryan Williams, and they could be good. Their schedule's brutal coming up, though.
2: All right, uh, let's see. Anything else?
1: No, I think most of this stuff. uh, If you pick, if you in like a pick 'em league, there were a lot of high scores this week. I don't think there were too many.
2: And another tough week for home teams. Yeah. Seems like it goes on and off every week. You know, whether it's going to be a team where the home teams dominate, or it's going to be a team week where the road teams.
1: Which must just mean that home field advantage isn't what it used to be.
2: It must. All right. Um, My second thing today. It's October, our first October show, and October to me has always mean baseball playoffs. And they begin on Friday, which is really exciting. I think at this point we know who the playoff teams are, uh, but where they fall is, is still a question mark. The Yankees and the Orioles are still going to have to sort out who's going to win the AL East. As, of we re- as we record, the Yankees have a one-game lead with two games to go. Uh, Maybe the most interesting thing in the last couple days of the regular season here is Texas and Oakland are playing each other and are separated by one game in the AL West. So Oakland could steal that division from Texas and avoid the one-game playoff, which is going to be against the Yankees or Baltimore uh, loser. So basically what we have in the AL is Detroit is locked in to the DLS at this point. The Yankees... Orioles, Rangers, and A's, two of them are going to be division winners, and two of them are going to play on Friday on CBS.
1: Hmm.
2: So really exciting last couple days this season in the American League. It's a lot clearer in the National League. Washington and Cincinnati are basically just playing for the number one seed in the league, each have 96 wins with two games to go. Uh, And San Francisco is going to be the other division winner uh, with 93 victories. So San Francisco is going to play whoever doesn't end up with the best record in the league in the divisional round. So they're either going to play Washington or Cincinnati. Atlanta has clinched the home game in the one-game playoff on Friday, and it looks like they're going to play St. Louis. Uh, The Dodgers are the only team that is still alive, and all they can do is force another one-game playoff by winning the last two and having... St. Louis lose the last two. If that happens, those two teams will play on Thursday for the right to play Atlanta on Friday, which I'm sure Atlanta would do a backflip down the block if they could get that to happen.
1: It's amazing that with 162 games, it always comes down to something like this.
2: Yeah, but baseball playoffs are here, and Friday should be a great day, and I'll have a little bit more on that in pick four.
1: One more add-on to the the baseball story. I don't know if you heard about this, but the Miami Marlins uh, signed a kid... Adam Greenberg. Oh, that's a great story. He's 31 years old now, but uh, he played against the Marlins back in July 9th, 2005, and was hit in the head by relief pitcher uh, Belrio Dos Los Santos. And he hasn't played a game since. So kid gets his rookie debut, hit in the head with a pitch. One at bat. And has never played again. Miami kind of did a cool thing, and they agreed to sign him to a one-day contract, and Ozzie Guillen is actually going to insert him into the lineup at some point tonight to get an at-bat. So that would be a cool thing to see. Hopefully he doesn't get hit again. That'd yeah. A, I, have the one, worst case scenario. I, I have one more thing too. Okay. Uh,
2: congratulations to Hunter Bailey, or Homer Bailey, excuse me. Oh, yeah, me, yeah. Uh, pitching a no-hitter on Friday against the Pirates. The seventh no-hitter this year, which I think ties the record for the most. Um, no-hitter slash perfect game. Uh, it's the first no-hitter, surprisingly, against the Pirates since they were no-hit By Gibson. Wow. So, and I think that was in 1960. 1971, Bob Gibson, no-hit them. That was the last time. So quite a little stretch there for the Pirates without being no-hit. It's the first no-hitter at PNC Park, one of the greatest places in the world. And it's kind of the defining moment in a career uh, for one of the great pitching prospects in the last 10 years in Homer Bailey. Uh, He's a guy when he was coming up through the minor leagues that was considered one of the best prospects in minor league baseball. and This has been his best season, and obviously that was his best game. Uh, So it's great for the Reds as they enter the playoffs here to have Homer Bailey pitching really well. And the last of last things in this little baseball roundup is one more thing to follow in the last couple days. Miguel Cabrera is on the precipice of winning yeah. the Triple Crown uh, for the first time since 1967. We're going to talk more about that with Jonah Carey when we get to the interview with him. But
1: Yeah, I heard some talk about how he might win the Triple Crown but not even win the MVP, which should be...
2: Yeah, and that's what we're going to talk with, with, about with Jonah because there's a lot of people who still really support Mike Trout from Anaheim, yeah. and that's based on advanced stats versus, I guess, old-school stats, and they're going to really square off in the voting here. But I think it'd be impossible... To not give the MVP to a guy who wins the batting title, hits the most home runs, and the most RBIs in a season where he makes the playoffs to a guy who obviously has a great season, but doesn't make the playoffs.
1: How does their fielding compare?
2: Well, that's where it's off the charts for Trout. Trout. Trout's one of the best in the league at his position, and Cabrera's one of the worst.
1: I see. All right, my. Second story this week is actually one I was going to use last week before we called the show off, and uh, it's kind of a cool football story. Jumbo Fisher, the head coach of the Florida Seminoles, did, did the right thing for this kid out of, where is he, Tampa. Uh, four-star high school senior Richie Kleppel of Tampa Jesuit High School a Florida State commit decided last week to, foot, to quit football Owing to multiple concussions. This article is uh, from last week's TMQ. Uh, Jumbo Fisher has said that he'll honor his scholarship offer to Kleppel anyway, which is a cool thing because he doesn't have to. Uh, TMQ goes on to say, The verbal commitment has no standing with the NCAA. If College A offers prospect B a scholarship and he commits, nothing is official until the national letter of intent is signed in February of the senior year. On paper, either can walk away, but a promise is a promise, and it looks like, Looks like Fisher's going to stick up for the promise, for and that's, that's really good for him, and uh, good for Richie Kleppel for doing the smart thing and not pursuing.
2: I wonder if Richie watched Head Games. Maybe. Uh, if you missed it, there's a great documentary that's available video on uh, pretty much every video on Demand Service, iTunes, PlayStation, uh, Xbox, yeah. all over, Um a great new documentary called Head Games by Steve James, and if you want to hear more about that, you can listen to our interview with Steve on our Football Nation podcast last week at www.footballnation.com and you click on Podcasts.
1: But Yeah, that's a smart move by a a high school senior to, I mean, he's a four-star recruit, they said, so going to a school that's nationally ranked, highly ranked, and Good for him and good for the coach for doing right by the kid.
2: Yeah, I guess he's got a big brain in that head. I guess so. Maybe that's why so many concussions. All right, tonight, Tuesday, October 2nd, marks the return of one of the great sports documentary series of all time, really. Uh, And that's ESPN's 30 for 30. They're calling it 30 for 30 Volume 2. Obviously, they're no longer celebrating any kind of 30th anniversary as that was years ago. But the series returns tonight with a documentary called Broke, by the same filmmaker who did The U in the first season, which was one of the better ones, yeah. I thought. A really interesting one about the University of Miami and their football program in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and broke centers around athletes who blew their cash. And I guess there's some really, really interesting interviews with Andre Risen and Bernie who's, Kosar.
1: Who's the, quarter, the other quarterback, the recent one? Michael Vick? No, not Vick. Uh, he's a backup, and they said... Oh, um Mark, Mark Brunel. Mark Brunel, yeah, Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's really amazing. His was interesting, though, because he tried to probably do what you would consider the right thing and invest his money and all that, but he just made a bunch of terrible investments.
2: If you missed uh, one or many of the 30 from 30s, the first go around, they are now all available on Netflix. So if you're a Netflix oh, cool. subscriber, you can find them there. They're also out on DVD. And you got to keep an eye on Grantland if you're into this series because besides the longer films, they've also been doing mini documentaries as a supplement to the 30 for 30 series and posted them on Grantland. And they recently did one on Arnold Schwarzenegger who's kind of here, there, and everywhere right now because of his new book, Total Recall, where he kind of fesses up to uh, – I guess being an adulteress and 60 Minutes spent a lot of time on that in their season premiere last week. But I wanted to give a shout-out to 30 for 30, not because they need it, just because I think it's great and they make really good films. And I think with it being their second time around now, uh, they have a chance to really show that they've figured it out, and I think we're going to get some great documentaries.
1: My last thing this week, the NBA is kind of taking a page out of the NHL and soccer Books, I suppose, and they're hoping to stop flopping. And if your first question is, "There's a rule in place to stop flopping in soccer?" Yes, there is. They can actually be carded and retroactively carded. Put in the book. Yep. Uh, But it's looking like the NBA is going to use a uh, system similar to the NHL. Other than NHL players can be fined on the or can be penalized on the ice, but it doesn't look like there's going to be in-game penalties. But the players are going to be fined afterward if the leagues determined they flopped
2: it's quite the judging which is, good,
1: call. which is good uh i think flopping is embarrassing especially as someone who's played soccer a lot much of my life uh it can be a very physical sport i don't think i've
2: ever taken a dive on a hockey rink
1: no i don't i don't know if i've ever taken a dive on this it's it's so hard because it gets called you know what i mean it, it hardly ever gets called the other way I'm not a guy. I I know I've never stayed on the ground and rolled around like an idiot. No, like I don't some know. of those soccer players do. I
2: might have you know felt the hook and you fall. A little you'll easier. go down a yeah. little easier, but I don't. I don't think I've ever taken an out and out dive on the rink.
1: But yeah, this is a problem in all in all of sports. It's embarrassing and uh, good for good the for NBA.
2: the NBA to do something. But I gotta say, it's gonna be tough for the guy in charge of finding those guys. You know, yeah. I mean, you got to be the guy to call LeBron James and tell him he goes 10K for a flop. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's going to say, what What are you talking about? I didn't flop.
1: And what's tough is what my first thought was to draw a charge. You basically have to stand still and get run over. And that's how often I wonder, is that going to look like flopping?
2: All right. Well, that's it for 30, th- <laughs> 30 for 30. That's it for uh... three things. Three things today, and uh, we got a great show lined up. Damon Hack, Lars Anderson, Jonah Carey, Five on Fantasy, Book Club Update. We'll close it off with Pick Four, and we will be right back. Our first guest today is from Los Angeles, California, and is a graduate of UCLA. He then went on to UC Berkeley, where he earned a master's degree in journalism. Professionally, he has covered the San Francisco 49ers for the Sacramento Bee and the New York Knicks for Newsday. He then moved on to cover golf in the NFL for the New York Times. He has spent the last several years as a senior writer for Sports Illustrated covering golf in the NFL. Today, he covers golf on television for the Golf Channel. He is making his sixth appearance on the Sportscasters. A warm welcome to the very talented and very kind Damon Hack. How are you doing today, Damon?
3: I'm great, Stephen. It's great to be with you. How you doing?
2: Oh, I'm doing all right. Uh, kind of like, I guess, any American golf fan, still kind of licking my wounds a little bit after what was a disastrous, well, Sunday at least. I mean, the whole weekend seemed to be going perfectly, at least Friday or Saturday. So I guess where I want to start with you, because I have a lot of questions, because I have a feeling you understand this a little bit better than I do. But the first question I want to ask you is, what went so right on sa- Friday and Saturday that went so wrong
3: on Sunday? Well, I think that the uh, U.S. team had a lot of energy and they were feeding off the crowd on Friday and Saturday, especially the pairing of Phil Mickelson and Keegan Bradley. If you know the history of the U.S. Ryder Cup team, you know, they had lost 6 of 8, 4 of 5 to Europe, never really seemed to have dynamic pairings. You know, Tiger Woods would be paired with a bunch of different guys and it really never took fire and Phil Mickelson had thirteen different uh, Ryder Cup partners until he, he found Keegan Bradley and on Friday they just had the whole Chicago crowd and Medina was going crazy. Uh, the whole team seemed to be feeding off the energy of Keegan and, and Phil. They played again together on Saturday morning. And then to me, which was the where the to me where the thing really turned, at least partially, was you know, Davis love and, and Phil Mickelson's decision to, to not send Keegan and Phil back out for the Saturday afternoon match, where they could have gone for a fourth point, and the reasoning was, Davis said that no one would play five matches. He wanted his guys fresh for Sunday, and you know the way I used to look at it is, you know, you don't worry about Sunday till you get to Sunday. You get get as many points as you can on Saturday, and I think that the U.S. team kind of blew an opportunity to really widen the lead and demoralize Europe. But give Europe credit on, on Saturday afternoon when they were down, they got their last two points of the day. Uh, Luke Donald getting one uh, against Tigers group. And, and, of course, Ian Poulter with Roy McIlroy. Ian Poulter making five straight birdies to close out his match, um, which really helped give you know Europe the slightest glimmer of hope. So you saw great momentum for the U.S. early on Friday and early on Saturday, but Saturday evening closed with a final push for Europe, which really was a harbinger for uh, Sunday's you know u- ultimate shock that we all witnessed.
2: Davis Levin's third has taken a lot of heat for this. Is it fair?
3: I think it's fair to a certain extent. Obviously, Davis didn't strike any any shots or hit any putts or miss the putts that, that Jim Furyk and Steve Stricker missed on the way home on Sunday. My only, I think he had a, a pretty strong captaincy as a whole. My, my only complaint would be that conversation he had with Bill you know, on the 10th hole of that morning Saturday match when when Davis obviously went up to, to Phil and Keegan to tell him something and Phil waved him off and said, no, you know, we're, we're tired. We're pooped, you know, bring two other guys out. We've given everything we have to this match. And at that point, you know, they won seven and six against Lee Westwood and Luke Donald meaning They only played 12 holes to alternate right. shot. So I think they would have had more to give if Davis had said, no, wait a second. I, I'm the captain. I'm changing the script here. I know I said no one's going to play. Five matches, but you guys are absolutely destroying whoever you play. Let's keep the momentum going. Let's get some points. Let's let's bank these points away. We may need them on on Sunday. Let's get as many as we can on Saturday. So my only fault was that to me, Davis and Phil, to a certain extent, were being diplomatic and wanting to make sure everybody got their turn at bat, almost like a little league game. Instead of saying, "Hey, let's kind of step on Europe's neck. Let's let's get these points now because we we'll don't know what's going to happen on Sunday." I think with the wide lead that the Americans were experiencing, they got a little bit possibly complacent, and ultimately it cost them to lose by uh, one point to Europe.
2: Nobody's going to argue that Tiger Woods is one of the greatest golfers of all time, but he could be considered one of the worst Ryder Cup players of all time. What is it about this tournament that turns Tiger Woods into a very mediocre golfer? That might be being kind
3: It's a great point, stephen I, I think it's the format. It's the fact that you have twelve guys in a locker room. Tiger has been pointing his whole career toward being an individual winning you know major championships, winning golf tournaments on his own, and the team format for whatever reason you know when it's the better ball or the foursome he just has never really seemed to find a formula a comfortable partnership that lasted very long. We've seen you know, limited success with him and Steve Furek or him and and Jim Furek or Steve Stricker at times. And in the president's cup or the Ryder cup, but he's never been able to sustain a long partnership. And I think it's because he works best on his own and he's more comfortable playing by himself. Obviously he's one of the greatest golfers. Of all time, but it's baffling to me and totally confounding that he's been unable to kind of bring that magic that he brought to so many golf tournaments to the Ryder Cup. It just has not been a good fit. We've seen him in seven different Ryder Cup matches now, and he was 0-3 and one this past weekend at Medina. Again, you know, coming up short. And, and really disappointing when when the team needed him. It, it, it's baffling. It continues to baffle me that you know maybe the Europeans rise and, and play their best golf against him, but for whatever reason, Tiger has not brought his best stuff to the Ryder Cup.
2: You know, you mentioned Steve Tr- Steve Stricker, and he's another guy who's taken a lot of heat on Twitter and in other places as people look to point the finger. Which is pretty na- It's a na- It's a natural thing to do when you have such a collapse like that. It might not be fair, but that's just what we do as fans and. As journalists, is the I ask you the same thing I asked you of Davis Love the, Love the Third. Is the
3: criticism that Stricker's taking is that fair? Yeah, it's tough. It's a tough call. Steve didn't play well. If you asked him how he played, he'd tell, he would tell you he didn't play very well. Jim Furyk, similarly, a guy in his forties, wasn't able to close the deal at the U.S. Open or at the Bridgestone and once again had a chance to beat Sergio Garcia, didn't get it done in his singles match. So these are two guys that Davis Love III picked as captain's picks, you know, guys that are of similar age to Davis Love that have been in team rooms with Davis at the President's Cup and at the Ryder Cup. So Davis brought these two veteran guys in, these guys that have been solid putters throughout their career to kind of carry the U.S. team in a pinch. That's why he has Spierak and Stricker and Tiger Woods you know, toward the end of his Sunday schedule, believing that they can make the putts down the stretch, and ultimately, you know, Davis was wrong. You you can point to so many different factors, whether it was benching Phil and Keegan, whether it was not taking Hunter Mahan or or a young Ricky Fowler, um, but it was all looking good Saturday night. That's right. that's what's so amazing. You know, if if one or two of those matches turns differently. We're not having this conversation and Davis Love is a genius and no one's worried about Steve Stricker or, or, or Jim Furyk missing a few putts down the stretch. But ultimately that's what happened. And, and Davis and, and the whole team is have to live with the aftermath uh, here year going forward.
2: Well, one thing that was kind of clear about this team and you mentioned Europe's kind of dominance in the last six years or so or really for the history of this thing. But, uh, The U.S. team seems to be one in transition. It seems to be one that's getting younger. And I expect that Tiger and Phil will still be kind of mainstays on this team, but it does seem like in the future they are going to be a younger team. Uh, Do you see the U.S. maybe having more success in this tournament as they get younger and some of these really talented young U.S. golfers that are on uh, tour become
3: a part of this thing? Well, certainly, you know, I would have thought that Tiger and Phil would have been the centerpiece for this great American resurgence. With Tiger Woods you're talking about one of the greatest golfers of all time, and with Phil Mickelson, he's a, a recent Hall of Famer and one of the best players of this generation. And if those players couldn't, you know, find an American resurgence and lead an American charge in the Ryder Cup, I'm not so sure that Hunter Mahan or Ricky Fowler or Chip Colley or some of these young guys coming up are going to be able to do the same. I would have thought that Tiger Woods, when he won the Masters by 12 shots, and have told me he'd only have one Ryder Cup victory to his name in 1999, and here we are in, in 2012. I would have said, no way, no how, impossible. But that just shows to me right now the gap between Europe and America as far as the Ryder Cup is concerned.
2: Now, it's it's obvious that, well, it seems obvious that this tournament means a lot more to Europe, the European players, than it does the United States golfers.
3: Is that fair? I think historically it has. I think that gap is closing. I think the Americans do care. I think we saw two years ago when Hunter Mann hit that poor chip and was in tears and you saw the Americans like Mickelson and Jim Furyk stepping up and speaking for him on his behalf and really putting an arm around him. And even on Sunday night after the Americans lost, Keegan Bradley talked about how they all got together in the team room and and talked about having each other's back and how much they love being a part of of this team, even in defeat. So I do think that this tournament is starting to mean more to the Americans. I I think it means a lot to them. I think it's not fair that it doesn't mean as much. Um, You know, the gap is closing. I think it means more to the Europeans just because they grow up playing more match play. Um, The Americans are kind of built to be more individualistic in their pursuit of greatness. I think there's more camaraderie In Europe, the the countries are so close together. When you play on the European tour, you're used to traveling and playing in all these different countries and speaking different languages. So there's even cultural factors, perhaps, that give the Europeans an edge. But it's funny. Now a lot of these Europeans live here in the United States. Justin Rose and McDowell and Rory McIlroy, Lee Westwood's moving to the States. So, you know, maybe the Europeans are just showing that they have comfort anywhere. They've beaten the U.S., obviously, in Wales. And now they've beaten them, you know, in the city of Big Shoulders, Chicago.
2: The sportscasters are here with our good buddy Damon Hack, who you can follow on Twitter. Uh, his new Twitter, I believe, is at Damon Hack GC. Is that correct? That's right. Absolutely yeah. right. How how has uh, how has it been the transition to the Golf Channel?
3: It's been good. It's interesting doing television. I'm still writing a little bit for for the website. I'll write once or twice a week for GolfChannel.com and. I'll uh, go on the air a few times a week and talk about the game and talk about tournaments that have happened. I traveled to Atlanta for the Tour Championship and did some honest hits there and wrote three or four columns. So it's fun. It has, It's not that different from what I was doing before, with the exception of the TV component. But even with Sports Illustrated, I was doing some videos for SI.com and Golf.com. So now I'm just kind of doing it for... A new company. I, I, I'm a football fan now. I don't cover football anymore, but I've, I'm enjoying having a few Sundays free to, to sit in a big leather chair and actually watch the games, you know, without a computer. Or if I do have a computer, it's just to check my fantasy football team and not worry about having to write a story.
2: Yeah, well, we talked about that last time, and I was going to ask you what it's been like to be, as you say, a football
3: fan. You've enjoyed it, huh? I really have, Stephen, and I, I, uh, I miss certain aspects of covering football. I miss the fellow football writers that I've gotten to know. There have been some players that I've interviewed in the past that I'll miss. Peyton Manning, for example, I interviewed him probably more than any athlete that I've ever covered uh, in covering the NFL for the New York Times and Sports Illustrated, who practically lived in Indianapolis. And they were in the playoffs practically every year. I'll, I'll miss Peyton and I'm excited for him and his new start in, in Denver. But, you know, I don't miss the Sunday night all right you know, from 8 p.m. to to 8 a.m. You know, trying to come up with something uh, pithy and and smart to say that that was getting a, a little bit harder and harder, especially with the 15 month old triplets. Uh, I found <laughs> that uh, this lifestyle in Florida is a little bit easier uh, for the health and and sound mind and sound body as well. Do you
2: think like Peyton Manning's been looking around his locker this year and he's like, I wonder where the hell Damon Hack is?
3: I tell you what, Peyton's a big golf fan and a big golfer. So somehow between Peyton and Archie and Eli, I hope maybe the word has gotten out that I'm not covering football anymore. I'm sure Peyton's got a lot more on his mind to worry about than, than where, you know, where one face in in the crowd is. But, uh, the Mannings know how appreciative I am of them. They they were always very accessible. And it was neat covering, uh, you know, my last Super Bowl story with, with Sports Illustrated was, was the Giants Super Bowl and was able to interview Eli, Archie, and Peyton. Um, during that week. And, and it was just, uh, to me, it was almost the perfect way to, to go out to to interview uh, that family that I've covered for, for many years in different capacities for different media outlets. And to be able to kind of end on that note, I couldn't have asked for a better uh, Super Bowl to cover or, or a Super Bowl story to, to be able to write about.
2: Let's get you out of here on this. I'm really curious. As you've been sitting in that big leather chair and following your fantasy team, which I'm sure is 4-0. and all. I'm sure you're crushing it. And, <laughs> uh, you know, watching these games, has there been one story that you're like, man, I wish
3: I could write that? Hmm. It's a great question. And I tell you, my, the only thing I've been saying so far is, man, I'm so happy I don't have to cover this. These
0: referee That's lockout right. situations, yeah.
3: having had to do the other one with the players and the owners, um, there's, there's nothing that really jumps out. I mean, appreciating the game as a fan and, you know, it, and getting to watch the games that I want to watch instead of the ones that I have to see, to, to, you know, see San Francisco's strength, miss the suddenly playing well, and... In Arizona, you know I got to know Ken Wizard had a little bit of did a story on him for Golf Magazine a couple of years ago, and here his Arizona Cardinals are four and oh he's actually from augusta and is a big golfer himself in the off season is isn't able to play during the season but is a big golfer off season so I tell you there's nothing that I really you know nothing that really stands out or something that I'm missing covering' I'm, I'm enjoying kind of seeing the game from this side of the the, the the chair was without a microphone and a notebook and, and just enjoying the game as, as a football fan and and remembering the good uh, stories and things I was able to do as, as a sports writer and with the SI and the New York Times. But I, I can't say there's a story that that I'm missing covering right now, with the possible exception of maybe making a little trip to, to Denver to say hi to, to Peyton Manning and seeing how that all the way is going to play out. But I would say that probably be uh, the only one that that jumps to mind. I think we got to get Peyton a
2: note because I just feel bad. I, I- I got to figure he's looking around for you like every week. He's like – he's got to be. He's got to be like, this. we're so close. Our families and Eli and my dad and he's got to feel like you abandoned him. I, I just – I don't know. We got to get him a note or something. But Damon, it's at Damon GC for Twitter. And is there anything else that our fans should know about where they can find you? GolfChannel.com. You said you've been doing some writing there. Anything else? Any specific TV shows we can watch?
3: Yeah, I usually am on morning drive, which is the the weekday show, Monday through Friday. I'm on there a couple of days a week, and I'm on the Grey Goose um, right now every Thursday and Friday through the rest of the season, um, which is on at midnight Eastern, um, the 19th hole, Grey Goose 19th hole show on Thursday and Friday on Golf Channel. And uh, those are the two places you'll find me mainly on the tube, and then uh, you can find me basically whatever you want uh, on golfchannel.com. Damon, thank you
2: so much for clearing up that Ryder Cup stuff and uh, talking a little bit of football with us. And uh, we'll be in touch. I'm sure we'll we'll, we'll get to you again soon.
3: Anytime, Stephen. I always enjoy the conversation. Thanks, Damon.
2: It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Stephen Jackson, Miles Austin, we Ocho Cinco, TJ zada I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. (laughs) I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right. We have to thank Damon Hack for being a really great friend to the show and being on today. We really appreciate that. Uh, Moving on to Five on Fantasy, a segment that I definitely missed doing while we were away. And uh, we'll get started right away with... The Listener League, which right now is a tale of two divisions. Uh, Don, your division has got three teams at two and two, and two at one and three, including yourself. Yeah, you need to step it up. And my division has a four and O team, two three and one teams, including myself, a two and two team, and then the worst team in the league at 0 and four. So, interesting. Last week, <laughs> week number four, I dominated the Cardiac Cats. Uh, 185 to 129, and you lost to the Browns backers 151 to 130. What went wrong for you?
1: I don't remember.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to rat you out, and I'm going to say that Pitta got you a zero. Yeah, that's right. That didn't help. Uh, and NFL.com is the worst site in the world when it comes to pop ups and things like that, by the way. They really need to improve that. Um, yeah, so Pitta hurt you, putting up a zero. And other than that, it just kind of looks like you just got outscored by a little bit. You didn't really have a terrible week or anything. Just uh, a really great week from the Browns Packers, led by Roddy White's 39 points. I think Roddy White won a lot of people a lot of games this week.
1: Yeah, that league's tough with uh, it's a lot of skills. deep roster. Yeah, yeah, we have two flexes in that league. It so gets high scoring. It gets high scoring, and if you're not high scoring, your chances are you're going to lose.
2: All right. Let's uh, move on, and I think the second thing uh, that we should do today, you want to do the awards, or do you want to do sits and starts? We can do the awards last. Why don't we put it in? All right. Well, we'll do sits and starts, and uh, two weeks ago when we were there, Don, I thought, did a really good job with his sits. He had Michael Vick sitting. Uh, that was the game that the Eagles lost, and Vick only had two hundred and seventy-two yards, 217 yards passing and no touchdowns. He also had Percy Harvin. As a sit, who, if you had him in a PPR, did yeah, he had an okay because okay yeah. he was nine catches for 89, but in a standard league, it's probably eight points, which was below your expectations. And then he had McFadden, who was the worst of his starts. He had 113 yards rushing and one TD. I, I just couldn't get it. Uh, I don't know. I'm off to a slow start with this. I had Matt Castle, who passed for 284 yards and did okay, but that game was really all about Jamal Charles. Oh, right. I had Mark Ingram uh marking not only a bust in uh sits and starts but he's been a bust really any way you want to look at it his career's off to a terrible start and i had vincent jackson who's been good for tampa bay but not that week he only had one catch for 29 yards so i gotta pick it up
1: all right my first sit this week and i must have forgot that i sat vic two weeks ago but i'm gonna sit him again i think he's in a really tough spot uh the team's not doing well in general He gets hit all the time. He turns the ball over a ton, and they have to go into Pittsburgh to play the Steelers after a bye. And I wouldn't like any quarterback in that situation, much less one that's off to a rocky start this year. I'm going to put Andy
2: Dalton's name out there as a start, and I'm going to say that I think he's getting to the point where he's in the category right below the top four or whatever, the must starts, the Breeze, Brady. Rodgers. Rodgers. I think he's inching his way up to that group, and the combination of him and Green is deadly. And I love Dalton's matchup this week, so I'm going to say start Dalton.
1: My running back sit this week is Maurice Jones-Drew. Uh, he plays the Bears, and I know sometimes I will kind of hedge these predictions by saying that I'm not saying necessarily to sit them, but I just to kind of not expect too much out of them. I would say with MJD, I might start a guy like Alfred Morris ahead of him or a guy like Frank Gore, I would start for sure over MJD. So, I mean, if you only have two running back spots and Gore's on your bench with MJD and somebody else, I'm starting Gore over MJD against the Bills, especially after what uh, the two New England running backs did to the Buffalo last week. That's ballsy. Yep. All right,
2: my start for this week at running back is a guy Don mentioned, Alfred Morris. Uh, He's been... (laughs) He's it's it's almost like everyone's been waiting for him to kind of fall off for uh, Shan, Shanahan <laughs> to take his touches away or something, but
1: he's been about as consistent as a running back can be.
2: Yeah, in ESPN standard leagues, he's fifth, fifth in scoring. Overall, yep. Uh, so I'm going to go with him. Fifth overall, running back. You, yeah, running backs. You got to start him every week. I think if you got him now. I think so. Uh,
1: my wide receiver sit this week. Uh, Look, you're probably only playing him as a third receiver anyway, so maybe this is one that's more don't necessarily sit him if you don't have better options, but is Brian Hartline. And basically here it's just don't expect anything even close to what he did last week. I know last week's like one of the all-time great receiving games with 253 yards or whatever he had, but I just don't think he comes close to that again this year. I think most. He's going to he had a... two
2: catches for 18 yards. I wouldn't be surprised. Right. He's
1: going to be a boomer bust guy, and I think he's going to bust way more often, especially that. I mean, it's not that type of offense. Miami wants to kind of run it and play short. I mean, I don't. Maybe they're trying to change with Tannehill. Maybe he's getting comfortable, but I just don't see it.
2: All right. My start at wide receiver is a guy who I think maybe his fantasy death was a little overrated, and that's Reggie Wayne. Uh, he's had a good chemistry so far with luck. He had nine catches the first week, six catches the second week, and eight catches the third week. So pretty consistent there, especially in a PPR. And this week he plays Green Bay, who have given up a lot of yards and a lot of points to offenses after a bye week to kind of rest and get healthy so i love reggie wayne this week
1: yeah if i was doing starts this week i thought luck might be one of mine like a non-obvious start especially if you have someone on a bye this week so keep in mind that there are buys yeah and fourteen four this, this week yeah. yeah i can't remember off the top of my head i know dallas is one of them so if you have romo luck's not a bad a bad start this week
2: all right so pickups just real quick
1: yeah, there's not too many obvious guys out there. I have Mendenhall down. Um, yeah, if you've listened to play. our other podcasts before, I'm kind of a Mendenhall hater. I just think he's really average. But uh, Pittsburgh likes to smash you up a little bit, and he's Dwyer and Redmond really haven't shown anything to supplant. They haven't stolen his job. No. No. Um, Brian Hartline, even though I kind of just pooped on him a little bit. Everyone's going to be there. trying to spend
2: money on him this week. I wouldn't
1: go nuts for him, but if you need a good third receiver probably a solid PPR guy too, and uh, Hickson and Barden. I like I like both of them. If Nix is going to be hurt, even if Nix isn't hurt, I probably like Hickson a little bit more. Uh, he was looked to a lot in the and, Sunday night
2: uh, game. Uh, Coughlin said he's concerned about, about Nix's Knicks. knee, yeah. whatever that means. So.
1: So, yeah, so pick up one or both of those guys. At the end of the game, if Barden wasn't interfered with, which what seemed like on every single play, he maybe would have had a better game than he did on Sunday. If you needed a running back, would you be intrigued at all by Brandon Bolden? Uh, probably not. If if you have a big enough bench where you can stash him, sure, he probably should be owned in every league. But uh, if you have a small bench, then probably not. I don't like New England's running game enough as it is. I kind of feel like that was just one where they were killing the bills on the ground. Maybe Buffalo came out in all nickel-dime packages. And
2: One last thing I'm going to throw out. I'm counting on Doug Martin in a league, and I'm getting a little worried. Uh, Garrett Bunt might be worth a, shot, a yeah. spot on your bench. He's playing like a guy who wants his job back from a rookie, and Doug Martin is... Suddenly playing like a rookie. And there's DJ Ware there. So yeah, yeah. Right that's kind bat. of turning into a three headed rotation, which is never good for fantasy. Yeah,
1: I haven't watched a lot of Doug Martin. Uh I've know more about him from what I've read in preseason columns and stuff like that. And but the little bit I have seen him, he looks pretty average. Like he doesn't look like a very explosive back. He looked great week one and really hasn't shown much since then.
2: All right. The last thing today is the NFL has played four weeks, and if you are in a league that plays 13 weeks of your regular season, that means a third of your season is gone, and we're going to do this after a third and after a half, and then after the season, we're going to give out some awards, and uh, Don, why don't you get us started? We have five awards to give away. You can start with whatever you'd like.
1: All right, I'm going to go with the MVP right after, or maybe we'll save that one. How about uh, the pickup of the year, since we already kind of mentioned him? I, I think it's... I think a lot of these actually we're going to have the same because I think they're not all that close. I think the pickup of the year is Alfred Morris, uh, the number five overall running back in ESPN standard scoring, and really a guy that you could have had since week one. Well, I mean, you probably didn't draft him, but maybe you did. He was on some people's radars. By the yeah, end of it and-
2: Here, here's where I went, and this is going to kind of play into what you said. For best waiver pickup, I went with Danny Amendola.
1: Assuming that maybe you had.
2: And then for best sleeper. I went with Alfred Morris because I did draft Morris personally late. in like three leagues late. Yeah. So I have no problem with Morris being the best waiver pickup or the best sleeper. Right. And since I went with him sleeper, just based on where I drafted him as a sleeper, I slid Amendola in
1: as the waiver pickup. All right. My, my sleeper uh, for this year, my best sleeper so far of the quarter is uh RG three. I looked at ESPNs. They still have their ADPs up, and I think to some extent these ADPs probably have moved a little bit because some leagues may be drafted after the season started. Yeah, like,
2: hey, two weeks in, let's do a league.
1: But even with that said, RG3 is going like in a 10-team league, he's going late fifth, early sixth round, and that's where he was drafted. So I think most people probably drafted him to be a backup, and right now he's the number one overall scoring player in the league. So I, he's my number one sleeper. All right, I guess I'll go bust
2: then. And I think that this is as clear as day. Despite having a decent week last yeah. week, I still think it's Chris Johnson. Yep. I mean, for a guy who was picked in the first round in just about every league, he hasn't come close to first round production.
1: Nope. Thirty second overall running back right now.
2: And uh, that's just that's just nowhere near anything what yeah. I wanted with that pick. So he's the bust to me.
1: Yeah, that's the same thing I had. And uh, so last we have our, our MVP and my, I went with RG3 again. I think if you drafted RG3, a close second in this is Matt Ryan. Yep, that's who I have. For me. So I have Ryan. Their ADPs are really, really close, and if you have either, I imagine that you're doing very well because you waited on quarterback and it's really paid off for you. So as long as you didn't draft Chris Johnson with your first-round pick, uh, you probably have some other guy that's been pretty productive for you. And uh You're pretty happy with it.
2: Yeah, I mean, Robert Griffin is 100 points in standard ESPN leagues. That's number one. And Matt Ryan has 93, and that's number two. Yep. Uh, So I have no problem with either guy. Um, I picked Matt Ryan because he's a guy that doesn't get lumped into the elite category, but he's clearly put himself there this year. Sure. Um, And you didn't have to draft him in the elite spot. No, neither of those
1: guys... You didn't have to do that with either of those guys. Um, and uh,
2: we kind of like, not necessarily award, but I kind of like mentioned like a best strategy type of thing as far as drafting. Like just looking back on the first four weeks, what was the winning strategy at the draft? I think the winning strategy at the draft was to make sure you had good running backs early, then kind of fill in your tight ends or your wide well, your wide receivers and maybe a tight end, and then get your quarterback later. Because quarterback has proven to that there's plenty of guys late. You don't need to pick a and anyone who went wide receiver in the first round is not happy.
1: Yeah. Even if you have Kelvin Johnson, uh, I mean, there's, there's plenty of guys that are borderline busts that you would have drafted early. Like, what do you think about DeMarco Murray right now? Is he, he's had one good week. So I mean, and he's probably a second round pick. The thing that saves you
2: with him is if you're in a PPR, he still catches. catches the ball a lot.
1: Right. So there are guys like I was trying to figure out, like, which strategy is a winning strategy? I happen to be 4-0 in the two, what were we calling it? Uh, not money leagues. Oh, the, uh, what do we call them? Chips? <laughs> Put chips on Something like that. But I happen to be 4-0 Seashells. in both of those leagues. And my strategy in both of those leagues, as someone that drafted late, was I ended up taking a running back, who was Matt Forte, in both leagues. And I ended up with one of the elite tight ends. I have Jimmy Graham in one, Gronkowski in the other. It would be hard for me to say that's the best strategy, though, because those guys haven't clearly been the best I still think they'll separate themselves and they're already have both moved up to two and three behind Gonzalez but it'd be hard for me to say that's the best my right or what I wrote as the best strategy was if you quote-unquote reached for Adrian Peterson Uh, he maybe fell to the third fourth round depending on when you drafted and you're gonna get you can feel it with him too he's really getting into stride he was good in that
2: he was good not great in this in these first four weeks he got you 50 points if you're in the standard. And in comparison, number one running back Foster is 69. Yeah, So he's, he's held in the ballpark. And now he's to the point where you can know he's getting that leg underneath him. He's more and more healthy. And he's got great matchups coming up. And, yeah, he's going to win people leagues.
1: And honestly, at this point, since he's gone through four weeks and survived, and I don't think he's shown up on the injury reports even, Mm-mm. I'd be more worried about Arian Foster's health than Peterson's at this point. Uh, Foster always seems to have nagging injuries. And, and like
2: you said in the beginning, what if Houston wins everything early and shuts yeah. down a guy
1: like him? I was actually offered a trade in one league that I had to turn down. I was offered uh, Adrian Peterson and Jermaine Gresham for Jimmy Graham and Jordy Nelson. and I, I told the guy that's really, really close, but it's it would be a huge drop-off for me at tight end, like crazy big. Right. So, I mean, I said if that was even somebody like Kyle Rudolph, I probably would do that deal. But, yeah, for me, the reaching on Adrian Peterson, definitely if you're a Matthew Barry fan, and I am, so I'm not picking on him by saying this, but him and somebody else did stats on drafting elite quarterbacks right away. And if you took that route, it probably hasn't worked. Yeah, Brady's been good. Uh, Breeze has been good despite the team not being great. Rodgers has probably been worse than both of them. Uh, and I expect all those guys to have solid years, maybe to finish in the top four or five. I mean,
2: there was people who picked Aaron Rodgers first overall. First overall yep. And if you're playing ESPN standard leagues right now, there's about 10 or 11 guys ahead of them. Right. And
1: I, I expect that to even out. But the problem with that strategy is like we already talked about, RG3 is must-start right now. Matt Ryan is a must-start right now. So you've got guys that were getting drafted later that are bumping into that category Maybe more than ever because in the past it's kind of like well if you don't draft a quarterback early draft one late because they're all the same. Now some of those guys that you're drafting late aren't just not the same. They're maybe better or right up there with the guys that you had to pick in the first round. It's a
2: good chance the guy who drafted Joe Flacco in your league has a really yeah. really good team. Sure, you know because he's had a good season. He's like right about fifth in points among quarterbacks. That's crazy. Yep. So all right, that's gonna do it for five on fantasy this week. Uh, we're going to take a break and come back with Byers Anderson from Sports Illustrated and sportsillustrated.com. Our next guest is from Lincoln, Nebraska, and is a graduate of St. Olaf College. He also earned a master's degree from the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University. Today, he's a staff writer at Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com, where he is the magazine's main motorsports writer. He has also regularly covered college football and has authored many profiles for SI's commemorative division. He is the author of five books, including his most recent, The Five Star, Red Grange, and the Brainstorming Tour that launched the NFL. He is making his second appearance on the podcast, a warm sportscaster's welcome to one of Sports Illustrated's most talented storytellers, Lars Anderson. How's it going, Lars?
0: Really well, and it's good to be back with you. It feels like it was—it's uh, been been a while, but uh, it's good to be back.
2: Yeah, it was uh, April 10th when we had you on last. April 10th, so seems well, like years it's, ago. Uh, it's,
0: oh, I'm, I'm I'm happy to be back on.
2: You know what that shows, though, is just how long NASCAR season is. Because that was it is. That,
0: it, 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 it's the most grueling season in all of sports. It's nine months it's 36 points races it's a total of 38 races um it's something like the last 14 or so are done consecutively without a a single off weekend for the teams and uh it is just a a brutally long season and uh... We're getting towards the end of it here, and um, I have a piece in the magazine this week arguing that uh, the most important race of the entire year is going to take place this Sunday at Talladega.
2: Talladega is one of those historic courses, I know, or courses, it's a silly way to put it, racetracks, one of the more historic racetracks, and I know Daytona gets a lot of focus, and they have two races, one in February and one in July, I think, beginning of July, and uh, Talladega also... Um, has the the big races as well. Would you consider Talladega to be maybe the second most important track to NASCAR? If we're assuming well,
0: Daytona, well, yeah, most important? you know NASCAR views the Daytona Five Hundred as their Super Bowl, right? And even though it's the first race of the year, they you know like they they, they spend basically. About three or four weeks testing just for that one single race. So, in a lot of ways, it's like IndyCar views the Indy 500. They'll spend a whole, IndyCar will spend a whole month at Indy just testing and practicing for that one race. NASCAR is the same thing with Daytona. But, uh, you know, after Daytona is over, you have 35 more races to go. And so, if you just look at it in terms of winning a championship, uh, this, the, the fall race at Talladega, in my view is is the most important one of the entire season just because of the of the big wrecks that the, that talladega is famous for producing and in, and because of those wrecks it opens up the it opens up the possibility of having you know anywhere Around you know thirty cars have a legitimate chance of winning, whereas most race weekends there's really just a handful of cars that 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 uh that have that have the the speed and the equipment um and then driver talent to to reach victory lane so now talladega is by far the most unpredictable track of all the tracks that NASCAR visits and um and and given its place in the chase, I believe this would be chase race number four. Um, you know, it's uh, it's, a, it's a chance for drivers to either lose a lot of ground in the championship or make up a lot of ground.
2: You know, all 12 drivers that are in the chase are within 72 points of first place. I, I assume yeah. that that's incredibly close, but is 72
0: points behind? Uh, well, no, it's, it's actually not because it, okay. it, they, they, they re they sort of recalibrated the point system two years ago. So now one point is essentially one position on the track. Okay. So if you're 72 points back, uh, you know, the most points you could make up in one race with, with bonus points, is, is I think 45 or 46. So then that would, that would take a perfect race where you would finish first and the person who was in first would finish dead last. So if, you, if you're 72 points back right now, you're basically out of the championship.
2: Okay. So then essentially, what do we have? Four drivers then approximately alive? Would you say 25 points you still have a chance? Is 32 still alive?
0: Yeah, that, 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 that'd that be right on the edge of it. I mean, it, it really it looks right now like it's going to be a three-person battle between Jimmy Johnson Denny Hamlin and Brad Keselowski. And Keselowski is your points leader. He's won uh, two of the first three races in the chase. But Keselowski is not as strong, has not run as strong traditionally on the final six tracks on the schedule as both Jimmy Johnson and Denny Hamlin have. So this is a big race for Keselowski. He's won at Talladega before. Um, He's a good restrictor plate racer and restrictor plates for those who don't know are the the tiny pieces or the the pieces of aluminum that are placed in the carburetors which restrict airflow into the engine which therefore limits the top speeds at these cars are on the big tracks of Daytona and Talladega limits the top speeds to 200 miles an hour this therefore causes the cars to run in big tight packs and just one little bobble or driver mistake in these tight packs, when you're going two hundred, which is a football field per second, um, it can cause just a, a big a big wreck that can take out half the field you know in an eye blink so at, at at Talladega, more than any other track, a driver is not necessarily in control of his own destiny, so um you know because of how the schedule sh- shakes up or how this how the schedule sets up for the rest of the season. Keselowski needs to have a real strong race. He needs to try to pad his points lead, and then hope that he can hold on over the final six races, uh, where at least on paper, Jimmy Johnson looks like he'll be the driver to beat at nearly every single track.
2: Well, yeah, we I mean we've seen Tony Stewart do the impossible last year, and that was beat Jimmy Johnson in a chase and. Now Hamlin and Keselowski are going to try to do it again this year. Let's just assume that Jimmy Johnson gets another championship this year. Where is he starting to put himself in terms of the bigger picture in NASCAR's greatest drivers?
0: he uh, he's 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 right there. You know, Dale Earnhardt as the as the most championships, uh, and Richard Petty with seven each, and uh, then you'd have Jimmy with uh, with six, and um, and the and. And Jimmy is still in the prime of his career. You know, Jimmy, you'd think, will have another eight to ten years of, of really challenging for championships. And so by the time he's done, he will probably have more championships than any other driver. He won't have as many wins. Richard Petty has 200, and Johnson's not even close to being halfway there yet. Um, but Petty got those wins in a different era when NASCAR was racing a lot more and the, 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 the field wasn't as competitive as it is now you know the, back, back when Petty was winning races he sometimes would win by beat up by two or three laps and you just, you don't see that anymore. You know, it, there's usually at least, you know, half the field is on the lead lap of, of most of the races, um, and now. So really what Jimmy is doing is, is, um, unprecedented. And, uh, you know, he's just got the right mixture of, he's got a, 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 a terrific crew chief in Chad Knaus. He's got a, uh, a, a fast pit road team although they've had their struggles this year a little bit, and he's with the best organization in NASCAR, Hendrick Motorsports, yeah. and so you you just put all that together, and um, you know he's just extremely formidable. He's not, and behind the wheel, really, his his greatest asset is not necessarily, you know, off the charts hand eye coordination. It's just his his ability to sense problems in his car, and and accurately diagnose. What he is feeling, and or describe what he's feeling, and then diagnose what the remedy should be for that, and then uh, and and do so in in very graphic descriptive language, which makes it easy for Chad Canal, his crew chief, then to tell his crew, okay, we need to do this, this, and this on this pit stop, and um, you know, this uh, just a just a very very impressive role that he's been on for the last really about last eight nine years
2: you wrote a piece in the magazine a couple weeks ago about his teammate Dale Earnhardt Jr. who's had a bit of a renaissance in his career this year winning a race for the first time in a long time and he's had uh, 10 top fives and 18 top tens Uh, really a terrific season Uh, right about now he's 39 points away from first which as you said might be too far at this point but Regardless, a great season for Dale. Uh, he's certainly a very uh, polarizing figure in all of sports. He's, he's got to be one of the most popular athletes in the United States of America, if not the world. And I wonder what were some interesting things that you learned when working on the piece, which now you have turned into a feature for the SI show on the NBC Sports Network, correct?
0: Yeah, it's actually going to be on the the main NBC uh network on October 13th at 2:30. Um and that, that was it's been a lot of fun to work on that. I think we're going to have like 9 or 12 minutes or so. And basically it's just trying to bring the magazine story to life on on the screen. And um Dale's been extremely cooperative with that. Um, we spent a lot of time together for the, for the TV show, uh, in Chicago. And then, um, the, the, the people from NBC went down to Charlotte and hung out with his mom and his sister and went to his race shop. And so I think it'll be a a pretty, uh, compelling, compelling piece. Um, just, you know, what I've learned is just, uh, you know, Dale, Dale's, Dale and I have known each other going on twelve years now. The the first story that I ever wrote at SI for uh when I started covering NASCAR was a rookie diary with Dale. And so we got together several times during his rookie season in of uh, two thousand and and we basically had an, an ongoing conversation since then. And um you know he just uh he's finally really just matured and and, and gotten it. He He has um, changed his lifestyle pretty dramatically. He's no longer eating junk food. He cut out uh, white bread. For the first time in his life, he's exercising regularly. He's he's running around his uh, gargantuan property in uh, North Carolina. He's lifting weights. And all of that actually does have an effect on him in the race car because his biggest flaw for years has been at the end of long green flag runs and at the end of races, he would lose track position. He would get passed left and right by cars because, it was because of two reasons. It was physical fatigue and mental fatigue, and those two things go hand in hand as race car driver. And once you start to get in better physical shape... Um, you know, he suddenly was becoming a much stronger driver at the end of races, and, and this year you've seen that he's he's been a strong finisher, consistently passing guys as the laps wind down. And um, you know, he just has re—he's re, really just dedicated himself for the first time to his sport. You know, he'll be the first to tell you that he'll he'll be as lazy as you'll allow him, and uh, he's always been. Someone who's not, he's always felt more comfortable being alone or with just one close friend than he has in a group. Uh, he's an incredibly shy guy, um, and that's never changed. But being with um, his new girlfriend, she, she's very adventurous and outgoing. She's sort of brought him out of his shell, and he, she's made it easier for him, really, to spend time with his crew chief, Steve LaTart spend more time with his engineers not only talking race setup and 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 what they need to put into the car but also just about life in general and they become close friends and that's that's been it it may sound like trivial and and high school but it's a it's been a really big deal for dale that he feels like he is just one of the guys now at the race shop feels comfortable going there and um you know, he's just really, he's just a happier person. He's as happy and as uh, and as comfortable in his own skin as, as I've ever seen him. And, um, you know, it, it's been a pretty remarkable thing. And I was, I was talking to uh, Richard Petty, and he, he put it pretty succinct. He said, when your personal life is crap, your race in life is crap. <laughs> and so uh, Junior has got his personal life in order and uh, I, th- I think it has had a big effect of how he's performed on the track.
2: You know, you mentioned that you have enjoyed kind of bringing this piece out of the magazine and into life on the NBC Sports Network, and i got to say that as someone who regularly interviews the writers at Sports Illustrated, I've really enjoyed seeing you guys and, and gals and Sarah Quack's, uh example uh, come to life on the show and, and see – the people that we talk to and read all the time uh, have a little bit of a a wider reach and uh, have a face and uh, be three-dimensional in a TV sense. Uh, What do you think of, of the magazine and the way the magazine has taken this step to have the TV show and the way that the style of the TV show has allowed for the writers to be a big part of the story? and um I, I guess I'm just asking what you kind of to expand a uh, little it's good. i, I, I yeah. was
0: I was just in New York um last week, and uh you know we filmed my portion of it and it took um maybe an hour and a half and um you know they really wanted me to sort of dig into my personal connection with Dale and, you know, just the fact that we've known each other for so long and I've sort of had a, a front seat view, so to speak, of his evolution. And, you know, we've talked about our fathers. I'd lost my father not long after he lost his and Dale and I are about the same age. And we've had many, many, you know, off the record, just me and him talking conversations about dealing with, Profound loss like that, and you know, so we get into that a little bit on the on the show, and it, it does it does definitely give um, give us a, a, as writers just a, a, another outlet to to reach reach more people, and and I'm I'm really excited for this. I, I think we'll get a lot of eyeballs on it. Like I said, it's going to be on the NBC regular. Network two um, thirty, Eastern Time on October thirteenth, and it'll be the hour before uh, the before Notre Dame kicks off.
2: That's awesome. Uh, the sportscasters are here with Lars Anderson from SI, who you can follow on Twitter at Lars Anderson SI. And we mentioned off the top that it's been tough to pit him down. And that's because he's got all this NASCAR stuff, which is just a never-ending cycle, as we talked about in the beginning of the interview. But you're also dead in the middle of SCC country. Uh, I'm pretty sure this is right that you work out of Alabama, correct? That's kind yeah, of yeah. I'm based really in Birmingham, yeah.
0: and um, yeah, I just was uh, we had hoped to do a long story um, was on um, Zach Nettenberger, the LSU quarterback. I spent a lot of time with him. Uh, we're sort of just sitting on that for right now. And I also recently was in Athens, Ohio, uh, hanging out with the Ohio Bobcats, the undefeated Ohio Bobcats, uh, working on a piece that will hopefully run here in the next few weeks, just about how they have a chance to kind of become the the Boise State of 2012, a a non-BCS school that could have a uh, a resume by the end of the year that would warrant uh, consideration for a BCS bid. Um, and just really the, uh, it's, it's also sort of an extensive profile of, of Frank Solich, the former Nebraska coach, who I actually knew pretty well. I grew up in Lincoln and I went to high school with his son, Jeff Solich. And so it was, uh, really interesting for me to, to go to Athens, Ohio and, uh, spend a few days with Solich and, and his staff. And, and, um, like I said, hopefully, uh, that will make it into the pages here. Uh, next week or the
2: following well i just don't hope i just hope for you for your sake that the mighty ub bulls don't ruin the story for you this week i mean it's a good thing that game is in athens because i'll tell you i live 15 minutes from the ub stadium and when they pack that place with the 10 to 15,000 people that they get each week i mean my house is shaking all saturday so it's well, a good we'll thing see. that game's in Athens. <laughs> it's just a good thing, I'll tell you. What a program they got out here in Buffalo. Uh, what do you think of uh, at the SEC this this year? And more more specifically, I mean, Alabama had looked before, maybe not looking quite as good in the Mississippi game, just looked like they were on another level than everyone else in college football. This year, and maybe the second to them was LSU, who also kind of showed some kinks last week. So, where do you see the league, and where do you see the top dogs in the league at this point of the season?
0: I still think it's uh, Alabama and LSU. Um, You know, as someone who is pretty close to the Alabama program, you know, I I teach a journalism class down there um, in the spring semester. And uh spent a lot of time with Coach Saban. Uh was uh, actually a quote unquote assistant coach in the spring game. And uh you know, those, those guys are just on a on another level right now than everybody else. I, I really do think that. And yeah, they didn't they didn't play their best game last week, but um you know that 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 happens every once in a while, and, and, and the spread and that or the the line in that game of that game was just ridiculous. I think it was you know what thirty points or so, and I, I you know. Any SEC matchup, you kind of have to shake your head at something like that. But um, I think LSU will get stronger. Um, Their defensive front four is the best in the country. Uh, It'll be interesting to see them when they match up against Alabama because I think Alabama has the best offensive line in the country with three future first-round draft picks. And, you know, it, it's odd to say, but their third-best offensive lineman might be Barrett Jones at center, who's the reigning Outland Trophy winner. Um, and I think, you know, a key, the key question for LSU is, is Zach Mattenberger. And, um, you know, I think it's in LSU's favor that they don't have Alabama, you know, right out of the gate. Like, the, he'll have some time to develop and, and mature a little bit and, um, you know, they get him at home at at LSU, and they basically just need, they need Mettenberger to make just a few plays but just try to be more of a game manager the way that A.J. McCarron was last year and, um, you know, and let the superior um, running and rushing attack and defense sort of take over, but I I, I do think, you know, it, it, it certainly looks like To me, those are the two best teams in the country. Oregon certainly right there in the mix as well. Um, It would I would be really interesting to see just how Oregon's speed would match up against Alabama or LSU. But uh, as we saw, you know, last year um, LSU handled Oregon pretty easily.
2: Yeah, Uh, (laughs) November third. is that game eight o'clock on CBS or seven o'clock central time LSU and Alabama. Uh, Let's close off with this last thing. uh, We have a book club. We feature a different book every month and sometimes we do a couple. We actually are going through about three this month. And one of the books is by a guy named Ray Glear who wrote a book called how the SEC became Goliath, the making of college football's most dominant conference. And he used the whole book uh, to give his answer to the question of how the SEC became a, live, so I don't expect you to answer it in two minutes, but you're someone who's been so close to the conference for so many years, so I guess if you could just explain, in your opinion, without having the book research and having the 500 pages to explain it to our listeners, how do you think the SEC has become the dominant football conference that it has in basically the BCS era?
0: Well, I uh, did a piece on SI.com Tackling a variation of that question, which is how has the state of Alabama become the, you know, the epicenter of the college football universe? Yeah. You know, winning the last three national championships. And I talked to uh, Nick Saban about this at length. I talked to Dean chiswick at length. Uh, I talked to um, Nico Johnson, a linebacker at Alabama, who's from the state. And you know, and, and and this maybe is an oversimplification, and I'm sure it is, but this is the answer I got. Uh, they said it, it's all rooted in in the fan base and and, and the passion that people feel uh, for their 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 teams here. And it's, you know, Saban's thought it went back to how there was really no NFL teams here uh, in the southeast uh, until. The early '70s, and so you have this long history of success. Um, you have uh, just extremely uh, sophisticated, even Pop Warner, you know, uh, level teams here uh, that that and that that feed into junior high teams, that feed into high school teams. All running a variation of the same offense and defense, and um, you know, you, you can go on any. Any Friday night uh, here in, in in Alabama, and uh, they'll be sold out. High school stadiums. I know it's big in Texas as well, but yeah. it's the same here. Um, you know, I, I think that that has a big part of it, and and for whatever reason, there is just a, a lot of just absolutely tremendous athletes in this area. And I think even Alabama produces disproportionately, if you just look at population uh, numbers, uh, disproportionately more NFL players than most states. And, um, you know, again, I think that goes back to a high level of of coaching that these kids are getting at at a very young age. And um, just the absolute bottomless passion uh, that people have for football in the, in the South and the Southeast. I don't know if that's anywhere near what uh, that, that book comes, the conclusion the book draws, but that's uh, that's sort of what I hear from you know uh, the the guys who have won the last three national championships.
2: And I'll make sure to tweet that piece that Lars is talking about out in case some, the listeners didn't get a chance to read it. So. Once you hear this, you can find the tweet to the link to the article that Lars just referenced in our timeline. Uh, Lars, thank you so much for joining us on the show again and talking about NASCAR and uh, and some college football. We really appreciate it, and we'll look forward to doing it again sometime soon.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'd love it. Love to uh, love to come back uh, anytime.
2: All right. Thank you. It was really fun. Thank you very all much. All right. All right. Thank you. Yep. All right, I want to thank Lars Anderson for joining us on the program. I love it when we get a guy from his first appearance to his second. just feels like we got him then. <laughs> we get him to <laughs> like come back a us. second time, we're going to get him a third and a fourth. We could trick him the first time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, quick book club update. We've been kind of talking about these books for a while now, three of them. And starting with next week's show, you're going to start hearing interviews from the authors of them. Uh, the Good Son, The Life of Ray Boom Boom Mancini by Mark Kriegel. Uh, how the SEC became Goliath: The Making of College Football's Most Dominant Conference by Ray Glier, and One Last Strike: Fifty Years in Baseball, Ten and a Half Games Back and One Final Championship Season by Tony Larusa. So we're gonna probably start with Kriegel next week. Larusa is coming up soon, and we'll finish it out with um, Ray Glier. But three great books. Uh, the Good Son is getting unbelievably great reviews. People saying it's the best. Sports, Biography, and Years. Uh, so if you get a chance to pick up any of these books, definitely do it. We're going to take a break and come back with Jonah Carey. Our next guest is from Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and is a graduate Of the journalism program at Concordia University. He has contributed work for ESPN.com, GQ, The New York Times, and countless other publications. Today, he's a staff writer for the popular Grantland website, where he also hosts a podcast during baseball season. His book, The Extra 2%, focuses on the rise of the Tampa Bay Rays and is a New York Times bestseller. His next book, about his beloved Montreal Expos, is due to be released in the spring of 2014. He is making his fifth appearance on the podcast today, a warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Jonah Carey. What's up, Jonah?
3: Hey, how are you, Steven?
2: All right, Jonah, I think where I want to start is here. When we had you on in April, we had a bit of a discussion about the changes that Major League Baseball had made to the playoff format. And when we talked about it then, we were just basically theorizing and throwing out potential theories about how it would change baseball. But now that the season has played out, we have seen the playoff system in a more practical sense. And my question for you is, how do you think the playoff format has affected baseball?
3: Uh, The new playoff system? Yeah, I mean, it's one year. You can't really say anything about it. I mean, ultimately, this is a move. It's not about altruism or anything like that, it's about raising revenue streams. It's about keeping more teams in the mix and uh you know, hopefully generating more interest and more tenants and so forth. And and uh those numbers I would have to check, but I mean that's the goal here. You know, if you're talking about how did it work based on the results of this one season, based on how the standings happened to fall. Yeah, you know, it was pretty interesting. We came down to the last uh, series of the season with a bunch of teams and uh others have gone on to clinch and, and, and all that. I mean You could go a bunch of ways with this. You could say, hey, um, this year in particular, if we would have the pre-1994 system, then gosh, the uh, AL West and AL East would be really interesting right now. You know, the Yankees versus the Orioles and the uh, A's versus the Rangers. So, I mean, this stuff is, it changes every year. I don't really sweat so much about, oh, is it good for X or is it good for Y? It's a money grab. I understand why it's a money grab, and you just move on from that.
2: We all waited for the basically entire season for Baltimore to prove to be a pretender. It just seemed like the way that they were winning games, it didn't seem possible that they could sustain that all season long. But here they are. There's two games left in the season and only one game behind the Yankees. And regardless of what happens in the American League East, they're going to be a wild card team. How surprised are you that Baltimore was able to sustain this throughout the entire season?
3: Well, they're the best one-run record in the history of baseball. Never before has a team had a one-run record this good. It's not like this is the best team. The team with the best record by any means. There have been teams that have won... You 110-plus know, games, the Orioles are going to settle in in the 90s here. So it's a quite a remarkable feat. A lot of that is, is just pure luck, and it's not going to be replicated ever again. But some of it is skill. You know, if you look at uh, the job that Buck Showalter has done with that bullpen in particular, he finds a way to insert the right guys in the right spot. So, you, you know, you look at the uh, individual parts, you say, well, gosh, they're not that good. But he really does a good job of understanding what's called leverage, which is basically who do I put in, when, and when do I save this guy, and what do I do, and he does a good job with that. And then beyond that, you know, like we do go back to luck and circumstances or whatever. You know, this guy hits a walk-off or this dribbler gets through the infield or what have you. So it's a little bit of both. You know, there's certainly some good fortune there, but uh, it's a well-managed team. It's also a pretty good team, by the way. I mean, you know, the, the thing that I come back to is I believe since, I want to say, July 17th or so, uh they have won roughly twice as many games as they've lost. They've been a tremendous team since then. And that date, I think it is July seventeenth, corresponds with a big change in their starting rotation. They turned over a lot of guys. They uh, brought in Chris Tillman and, and Zach Britton, two pretty good young pitchers who had struggled before and, and uh them back in the rotation and they really did better than the guys that were there. That was a big move. And, uh, you know, other things happened too. Manny Machado came up and made a big difference. Third base, Wilson Denon was really disaster over there. And some other things as well. So I would say that in the first half of the season, you could say, wow, this was just almost entirely a bolt of lightning, luck, circumstance, whatever you want to say. And then as the season went on, there was still good fortune, but it became a better team, an organically better team.
2: The AL Central is a division that, from the beginning, we all thought Detroit was going to eventually win, but Chicago just hung in there and spent almost the entire season in first place. But in the last 20 games, or even if you want to go down to 10, Chicago only went 3-7, and seven, Detroit went 7-3, and three, and now Detroit has won that division and is going to be in the playoffs. Part of the reason Detroit is in the playoffs is because of the way Miguel Cabrera has played. And Cabrera has put himself in position with two games remaining to possibly be the first player to win the Triple Crown since 1967. In your opinion, if he wins the Triple Crown, does that mean that he needs to be the MVP of the league, or do you think that there would still be a case to be made for Mike Trout?
3: Let me ask you a question. Let's say that somebody leads the league in intentional walks, hamstring injuries, and steroids prosecutions. Those are three categories. Does that mean that he should be the MVP? These are three random categories put together a long time ago. They don't mean all that much. I will say it's almost impossible. It pretty much is impossible to win the Triple Crown without being a very good player and a very good hitter. That's absolutely true. But you could say that about a whole bunch of other stats, too. And the bottom line is that Cabrera's having a great year. It'd be great if he wins the Triple Crown. That'd be fantastic. has not happened 45 years. That's nice. But the most valuable player in the American League is Mike Trout. Mike Trout actually had a pretty similar offensive season to Cabrera. He's hit for power. Uh, he's hit for average. He has a high on base. He does all that. Not quite as much power as Cabrera. But it's in the same ballpark. But he's also... Possibly the best defender at his position in all of baseball, whereas Cabrera is really bad at defense. And he's also the single best base runner in all of Trout is Stole 46 out of 50 bases so far and uh, just takes the extra base almost every time and just seems to do a very good job with that. So, you know, if this was an award for best hitter in baseball, Miguel Cabrera would win. But it's not. It's for best player, and the best player is Mike Trout. That's it.
2: The Oakland Athletics are another one of baseball's big surprises this year, and it seems like they're putting together the script for Moneyball 2 this year. I guess what I would like to know from you, someone who I respect, opinion on advanced statistics, and I know has studied advanced statistics and believes in them quite a bit. Have the A's done it the same way this year? Because we've seen a gap in sp- in time where they didn't make the playoffs, they weren't the greatest team. Some people are starting to question Billy Bean and Moneyball in general. So is this just another example of a great Moneyball season, or has it been about something else like coaching or better players on the roster or just something that isn't Moneyball?
3: No, I mean, it's a good team. They have good players. It's not really much of a secret. The big thing is, well, one of the first things is they built a very good bullpen. They had a good bullpen last year, too. It's been even better this year with uh, Ryan Cook, a rookie, just doing exceptionally well. And that's the common denominator with that, but the Orioles, same with the A's. I mean, if you can get through six innings with your starter, and you're pretty much going to beat the other team from then on because you're not going to give up any runs. That's a huge factor, and that's certainly been a big part of it. But they have the power now. I mean, they didn't have power hitting in the past, And they do now. You know, you look at uh, the job that Josh Reddick has done, that's turned into just a magnificent trade. He's got 32 home runs and he's got a terrific arm. I mean, this is an all-star caliber player that they absolutely fleeced from the Red Sox. That was a great move. Brandon Moss, who hasn't been quite as good as Reddick, but he's hit a bunch of home runs. He was a Red Sox refugee. Forget about being traded. He was basically scrap heap material. They picked him up. He's well over 20 home runs. Johnny Gomes was another scrap heap kind of guy. He's hitting a bunch of home runs. They platoon really well. You you look at... uh, Gomes, he plays part-time, he he tends to alternate at-bats. So does Brandon Moss and Chris Carter at first base. They get the most out of their players by doing that, by understanding lefty-righty matchups. The starting pitching has been there. It was there in the past too, but it's really been there this year in that some of the top guys like Brandon McCarthy and Bartolo Colon and Brett Anderson were very good when they pitched, but they've been hurt for much of the year. And the second wave has been so good. It's not many teams that could say, okay, well, here are five other starters, and they're all going to be great too. And as it happens, those five guys right now all five of them are rookies. That's pretty remarkable, but really testament to just their ability to identify talent and and do a good job with that. So I, I stay away from the money ball formulas, what's Billy Bean doing, blah, blah, blah. I think that diminishes the fact that this is just a good team with a bunch of good players. I mean, the A's have done a good job of acquiring these guys. It's great to get Reddick. And Gomes was a good move, and Moss was a good move, and so forth. But I, I think that we just have to accept the fact that they're, they're pretty good. Not quite the same situation as the Orioles. A lot of walk-off wins. They've got 14 walk-off wins this year. I was actually at one of them. It was a Derek Norris three-run walk-off home run against the Giants uh, back in June. That was really exciting. So there has been some element of that good fortune, certainly, but I would say a little bit less than Baltimore. To me, just if you look at the personnel on this team, this strikes me as a little better team than the Orioles have.
2: As the world's number one Montreal Expos fan, do you take any satisfaction in the Nationals season this year?
3: The world's most famous Expos fan is Donald Sutherland. You (laughs) could discuss who's number two or number five or whatever, but it's definitely Donald Sutherland. Okay. After that, that. well, that's fine, and I've been called number two in derogatory ways, too, so that's totally fine. Um, (laughs) The Nationals, you know, I'm neutral about it. I don't really have an opinion for or against the Nationals. I did watch them... uh, Clinch uh, the other night, uh, yeah, last night, last night I think it was, um, and that was very excited to clinch the division. Uh, it was just cool, you know. It was cool to see any fans. It could have been I could have been watching Cincinnati or any other team, just to see a stadium full of fans react that way. It was very cool. And Mike Morse was up, and his at-bat music, his "Take on Me," and the fans were all seen "Take on Me." This had happened right after the clinching, and it was just a cool, festive atmosphere. But it didn't mean anything to me. I don't really have an opinion about it. They're they're a good team. So, are the Yankees and the Tigers and the Rangers and a whole bunch of other people, and and that's fine. And uh, you know, I salute them for that. I did live in D.C. for two years, and, and I like the city and the people that I met there. I like them, and I still know some people there that now root for the Nets. That's all good, but I, I don't really. It doesn't affect my Expos fandom. I don't feel bitter about oh, my team should have been them. I don't think. Well, gosh, how did they ever move? I mean, it's it's kind of ancient history at this point. It was eight years ago. This is not only a different team, it's a different franchise altogether. When I was on Twitter, when it happened, I said, uh, congratulations to the Nationals for their first playoff first in franchise history. It really is. This is a new franchise. It's the first time they've made the playoffs, and that's all that matters. The Nationals and the Expos, to me, are not the same.
2: In a couple of days, we're going to know which four teams are in the DLS round, the Division League series, in each in each league. And I wonder, as we get closer and closer to the playoffs... Are there any specific storylines, any matchups, any things that you're most anticipating as we get ready to start the playoffs?
3: Um, no, I think they're all good. I don't really sweat too much about who's facing who. I just want a chance to see all these teams. I mean, I, I don't, I don't view any of these teams as way better than all the others. I do a weekly power rankings at uh, Grantland.com called the Thirty. And I've alternated number one teams so many times this year. I mean, Washington and Cincinnati and Texas and the Yankees at some point, all these teams have been able to lay claim to being the best team in baseball at any point. And I don't think we can definitively say who the best is now. So I don't – baseball's not really like basketball. And basketball, I say, well, I definitely want, you know, uh, whatever. This team against that team because I want the the uh, let's say, the Thunder against the Heat because I want to see Durant and LeBron and they're going to go at it. Baseball's not really like that. It's very much a, a sport where everything is kind of separated, and uh, you know, it's one guy with a bat, one guy with a ball, and so forth. You don't really see that kind of one-on-one matchups, the way they, they're executed in basketball or even hockey to some extent. Baseball's just sort of a breed apart. I like to see te- good teams play, and, and I'm pretty confident that the 10 teams are going to make the playoffs. Some are better than others, but I think they're all good teams, and I'm excited to watch them.
2: The sportscasters are here finishing up with Jonah Carey from grantland.com. You can follow Jonah on Twitter at Jonah Carey. Pretty easy to find him there. And, of course, grantland.com. is just www.grantland.com. We're going to close out with this, Jonah, because I always like to get an update whenever you're on the show. I know 2014 is still a ways off, but what can you tell us about the pro- progress of your Expos book?
3: Uh, thanks. Um, <clears throat> I've been doing interviews. I'm going back to Montreal next week. Uh, to do some more interviews, just working on it. It's just a lot of research. I'm up to about 100 interviews by now, and uh, I'm going to start uh, bound, uh, pounding them out into chapters at some point, and pages, and sections, and subheads, subbar, uh, sidebars, and subheads, and all that stuff. And uh, it's a process. You know, I don't have to deliver this book until uh, well into 2013, and I'm sure I'll use up every minute of that time uh, reporting and crafting and all that. And it's, uh, I don't know it's kind of boring to describe what the process of a book is like when it comes out it's like okay cool let's talk about this and oh that happened and, oh that was an interesting page or whatever but while it's happening it's just it's a grind it's just you gotta do the work and uh, hopefully make it good
2: thanks Jonah for giving us a little bit of time today we really appreciate it thanks Stephen All right. Thank you to Jonah Carey from Grantland dot com for stopping by for a couple of minutes and chatting about baseball with us. Also thanks to Lars Anderson and Damon Hack for being on the show today. Don't forget you can find the Sportscasters at our website, www.sportscasters.com. com. You can also find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash the Sportscasters. You can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can email us anytime. The sportscasters at gmail dot com. Don't forget about our other podcast, Uh At footballnation.com, the sportscasters uh, over there, we've had interviews with people like Kenny Albert and Steve James and Peter King and Ian Rappaport. We'll have more of the same this week over there at Football Nation. And now it's even easier to find. Just go to footballnation.com and you can click on podcasts and you'll find our newest work there. Last piece of business for today is Pick 4. And two weeks ago, or maybe three weeks ago now, I kicked ass and yeah. went 4-0. I had Kansas State plus 14 over Oklahoma. They won they the won, game outright, yeah. 24-19. to I knew that Oklahoma was in trouble right from the start of that game. Had the Raiders plus 5 over the Steelers. Raiders won outright, uh, 34-31. I knew that was going to be a tough game for uh, the Steelers. Uh, also, I took the Falcons over the Chargers, uh, laid some points, won that one easily, and I got crazy and picked the Vikings, even over the 49ers. Oh yeah. And won. 24, 13 makes my record 84 and 61 in season two. Uh, Don, you went one, two and one. Uh, you won the Falcons uh, over the Chargers. Um, you, that was the Falcons got three points in that game, actually. Uh, you lost the Rams even over the Bears. They lost 23 to 6. And you lost the Packers minus four over Seattle. Foul Mary, uh, you had the Dolphins plus three against the Jets. That game finished twenty-three to twenty. That's right. It did. So that's a push. So we're just going to give you a one and two record, and that makes you
1: seventy-three and seventy-three in season two. All right, we're going to kick it off this week. The game of the week is Broncos at Patriots. Uh, the Manning Brady rivalry, just with different colors. Uh, Pats are minus seven here. The Broncos defense is. Good as they were last year. It's kind of struggled a little bit this year, and the Pats look like they're back on track. So I'm going to take the Patriots minus 7. That's CBS 425 on Sunday. Yeah,
2: I, I kind of felt like the Patriots picked up a lot of steam last week. Like, they got things going in the second half here in Buffalo, and it just feels like they're going to start rolling a little bit now after that disappointing game against the Falcons. So I'm going to take the Patriots and lay the 7 as well. Nothing against Peyton Manning and the Broncos. I think that they'll probably do enough uh to get a wild card or maybe challenge the Chargers for that division. We'll see. But uh, it's going to be tough to ask them to go into New England. And yeah, win they've NXT. had a tough schedule. Yeah, they have.
1: Uh, my worldwide leader pick this week is the Thursday night game on NFL Network at 820. That's the Cardinals at the Rams. Maybe not the uh, sexiest of matchups at the beginning of the year, but the Cardinals are 4-0. They're only a one-point favorite. I know they're on the road, but I'm going to take them minus the one point and say they go to 5-0. For my worldwide leader, I'm going to take the
2: Braves in the one-game wild card mm-hmm. on Friday. Uh, they're probably going to play the Cardinals. There's a chance that they could play the Dodgers. I'm going to take them either way. Uh, they're going to have Chris Meglin on the mound. They haven't lost in, I think, 23 games or something that he started. He's had a great season, and the Braves clinched this thing early enough to get it set so he could go. Uh, I think the Cardinals are going to pitch Kyle Loesch. I'm not sure what the Dodgers would do uh, because they would have to um, get in with a playoff. So Kershaw would probably pitch in that one-game playoff. But regardless of who the Braves pick, I, th- I play, I think it's set up nice for them, and I'm going to pick them to win. The game's Friday uh, the 5th. It's on TBS at a time to be determined. I'm sure based on the matchups, TBS will take whatever the better one is at night and play the
1: other one in the day. I'm sure that baseball would love it because it's the Dodgers and it's a huge market. But I wonder if it, like, if it was a different team, if they would like that the Dodgers might make it on a one-game playoff, and then basically, and if they won the one-game wild card playoff, like, would they like a team to go from that spot and win out? Because to some degree, I think that kind of hurts leagues a little bit. Like the fact that the Giants won the Super Bowl at nine and seven, I think, is a little bit silly. Yeah, I, I think what the baseball would
2: like is to see the Cardinals clinch in the next couple of days, have no games on Thursday, just take that day off and start the playoffs with the new format and the new teams on Friday and
1: go from there. I think that's what baseball
2: would like the best.
1: All right, my host choice this week is the Bills at the 49ers. Look, it's easy to hate on the Bills after that game. Uh, They kind of just disappeared in it. I I think they're going to be a middle-of-the-road team this year, unfortunately. I'd like them to either make the playoffs or just lose the rest of their games. But I don't think they're going to get smoked that badly, and I don't think the 49ers' offense is good enough to really put distance between them. Uh, The Bills are getting 10 points here. That's Sunday at 425, and I'm going to take the 10 points in the Bills. All right, I'm going to pick the Steelers minus 3 over the Eagles.
2: Uh, That game is Sunday, 1 o'clock on Fox. That seems like an obvious pick. I didn't
1: even pick that one. I mean,
2: the Steelers are at home. Coming off a bye. Coming off a bye. I only have to lay three points, and I don't believe in the Eagles. Right,
1: and they're potentially getting Palomalu and Hairston back, too, who haven't played at all this year yet. Yeah, so I,
2: I love the Steelers there, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to comfortably take that one.
1: All right, my bold prediction this week is the uh, upstart Vikings are 3-1 and and are a six-point favorite at home against the Titans. I'm going to double that and take the Vikings minus 12.
2: Yeah, I'm going to go crazy again a little bit, and – the Redskins play the Falcons on Sunday, and the Redskins are getting three points in the game. I'll flip that. I'll lay three points and take the Redskins over the Falcons. It just feels like the week for the Falcons to stumble a little bit. they
1: played a lot of tight games.
2: They've, they've played tight games. They, they had an unbelievable win. Uh, basically a Hail Mary out of the end zone to even give them a chance. Yep. And it just feels like a week that they just don't need it that bad. And with the Saints 0-4... Just feels like they're gonna get into coast mode early, and I don't know. I'm gonna take RG three, and I'll lay three points and see what happens. Who's there. home there? Uh, that's a good question. I uh, think it's
1: Washington. I think right? it's Washington as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, Washington's the home team, so even more of a reason to uh, yeah yeah why not to hook to Washington there. All right, uh, we got to thank our guests once again, Damon Hack, Lars Anderson, and Jonah Carey, and uh, remind you check out our website www sports-casters.com and to check out our show at Football Nation, click on Podcasts. Uh, Don, you can cue the
3: hip. All right.